HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. I'm Brianna Kurtz, host of Eat Your Words. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you, as always, live from the back of Roberta's Pizza. A beautiful day here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You've tuned in to the Farm Report. I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks, and I'm excited. Today we're going to be continuing our conversation on uh, regional economies, uh, looking specifically at meat and livestock. And we have two excellent guests today. I'm joined in the studio um, by Christoph. Hello, Christoph. Welcome to the studio. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much. Good to be back on Radio Land. Thank you. Thank you very much. Christoph has been working in food for a long time. He was a, a chef partner at A16, a great uh, restaurant out in San Francisco, and is currently founder and co-owner of Northern Spy Food Co. But today we're going to be talking about a role that's a little newer for him. He recently joined the team at Fleischer's Meat Market, and... Um, we are also on the line with Kathleen Harris of the Northeast Livestock Processing Service. Kathleen, welcome to the show. Why, thank you, Erin. So I'm really excited to kind of have two different ends of this meat conversation um, joining us today. Um, and what I really hope to do uh, in the next 30 minutes is kind of paint a little bit of a picture uh, around the realities uh, as they relate to meat production here in the Northeast and some of the infrastructure that's making this uh, work or, or not work. And Kathleen, I want to start with you. Can you give us a little background on the Northeast Livestock Processing Service? Kind of you guys started in what back in in 2005. You're currently working with 141 farms through 24 counties, 15 different processors. But can you fill in the the details with regards to kind of what actually is the role you play, and how do how do farms and processors kind of interact with you? 
Um, sure, Aaron. Originally, uh, the company was started because there was such a lack of process USDA uh, livestock processing facilities here in uh, New York and all over the Northeast, actually. And so uh, a group of farmers got together with the RC&D Council, Resource Conservation and Development Council, in the lower Hudson Valley, and they set about, um, in their mind, they were going to solve this problem for their fellow farmers, and they did. And, um, you know, many things happened, but one of the things was the development of NELP. Northeast Livestock Processing Service Company. And the notion was that we would provide services to help our farmers mitigate or navigate the nuances of USDA processing because apparently there was a survey done that revealed there was enough capacity for USDA processing if it was managed better with more throughput throughout the year and uh, just a little bit of facilitation services that would help between the processors and the farmers. And so that's why we were originally developed. And as things uh, moved along and the local food movement, you know, blossomed and now is, you know, far more than we any of us ever dreamed of, um, our farmers... More and more, the industry took a hold, and more and more processors came online, and pretty soon the needs of our farmers moved from processing facilitation more toward marketing help. And so that was our next um, adventure through the Northeast Livestock Processing Service. And so we have been working with our farmers to help them market their products um, since 2008. So when a, when a farmer comes to you and says, hey, I, I want to get on board with what are you doing, what does that process look like? Uh, and I'm just curious, like, if you can talk a little bit about any of the criteria that you've developed to help you make decisions about who makes sense to, to work with. Well, all the farmers that come to us um, come to us for a reason. Either they need processing facilitation help or they need marketing help. And so the first thing I do is have a lengthy um, conversation with them about what their aspirations are, what they're doing now, and where they hope to be. And then we formulate a plan. Maybe it's just finding the right plant and fitting them with the right plant and letting them take off on their own in the marketing arena. Or maybe it's that they work part-time or full-time or they're off the farm more than they really can do service to the livestock and the marketing, so they need the help with the marketing. So because we are owned and operated by a board of directors who are all farmers who have a very altruistic attitude about serving their fellow farmers, we do not market in areas where they can market for themselves. We only market in areas that are probably, you'd say, too big for them to do on their own. So we've, uh, we've uh, ventured into the, um, the school markets, the institution markets. Um, we became an approved vendor with a large food service company. So those things most farmers can't do for themselves. So when they call me, that's what we decide. What do they really need from us? If they just don't have the time, then what I tell them is when we get the orders, if they become a member, 
when we get the orders, we'll do the search, and they can respond to any of those orders. Then I go to their farm and make sure that their animals meet our affidavit requirements, which include no routine antibiotics, no routine or, or prophylactic antibiotics, but also no um, added hormones. So those things are very important to us. In addition, if we're, if we're buying livestock that are pasture-raised and grain-finished, we expect a low percent of grain concentrate in the finishing ration and a very high percent of um, grass-based finishing ration. So these are the criteria that we look for. And I go to the farm. I know my farmers. I've been a farmer all my life. And I have an opportunity when I go to the farm to assess the situation, and um, then I gather the affidavits, and we're off, and we're marketing. So I think one of the things you touched on that I, I hope we'll be discussing a little bit more later in the program is is this idea of, of scale and what an individual can do um, on their own farm and what a group can do. And so I'm excited to tuck into that. But I wanted to just ask for a little bit more clarification around processing facilitation um, just because I feel like some of my listeners might not be super clear about what that actually means. Can you just give us, like, the brief nuts and bolts? Yes. Processing facilitation means that you will call me. I will find out where you live and what would be, and I try to fit you with a best fit plant that will meet your criteria. Say, for instance, you're raising beef cattle, and you really want to sell beef patties. Not all processing facilities have a patty-making machine. And so that's something I would do the search and make sure that I fit you with a plant that can do that. If you're raising hogs and you need to have a scalded hog such that the skin is left on the hog, not all plants have a scalding machine. So I need to make sure that I fit you with the right criteria that you need to, to carry out your business activities. Um, so then what else did you need to know on that? No, that, 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 that makes sense. You're a, sounds like a little bit of a, a matchmaker. You kind of know what everyone in the region has the capacity right. to do. And, and it's I can do scheduling and I can help with cutting instructions in between the plants and the farmers, particularly farmers who are starting new to the business of USDA processing. They don't understand the cuts of meat, um, and they need some advice as to what cuts they should be making at various times of year. So I can work with them and help them on that. So I work between the farmer and the plant. Once that relationship is solidified and stable, I step away, and our farmers are what we call processing independent. Excellent. Now, Christoph, kind of shifting gears, can you talk a little bit about um, how you got engaged with Fleischer's and, and what is the work that you're doing with them now? Well, I had been uh, approached by Josh and Jessica Applestone in 2011 when they were opening the Park Slope shop, or before they opened it, and I came on bar board as a part owner of that shop. I had known them for several years, uh, partly from work as a private chef in the Hudson Valley for a period, and then uh, buying meat from them wholesale for Northern Spy. And last summer, I, uh, I was asked to come on board to help with growth and financial management and general sort of like cleaning the place up in terms of just the operation, the operations, because what often happens is um, these companies grow and they outpace um, the founder's ability to manage all the nuts and bolts of the moving parts of a business, which is very complicated. They are good at the vision and the artistic side, the creative side, but uh, the business side sort of starts to 
like look like you know the back of your closet. And so I'm a back of the closet cleaner. Um, and so I came to do that, and I've been doing that pretty much for the last year. Just you know a lot of a lot of um, back office stuff, admin, looking towards growth, and you know like managing the banking and the payroll and just all that stuff, like really nuts and bolts kind of stuff. And we uh, became involved with uh, NELPS uh, about September of last year. Kathleen knows uh, one of the other owners of uh, Fleischer's, a man named Mark Just, who raises our pigs at J&D Farm in Eaton, New York. They knew each other. Mark um, brought Kathleen on board as our new, um, our main supplier of, of beef and lamb for Fleischer's. And um, it's been really a great relationship ever since. We buy probably seven, you know, average seven or eight steers a week, of which five or six usually come from Nelps. Um, and it's been pretty excellent. You know, it's, uh, I, I've very, we've like, we've had very few problems and it's been, it's really solidified our, our New York sourcing. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Now for folks who are less familiar with Fleischer's, you have the two kind of retail butcher shops and that's really the bulk of your business, but you guys also do a little bit of wholesale and then some kind of training classes. Yeah. So the, the, the business is basically built around one retail shop in Kingston that was opened in, started originally, I think, in 2004, and uh, butcher, and the retail shop in Park Slope, which opened in 2011. And as of January of this year, we moved our, our, our processing facility from Kingston to Red Hook, Brooklyn. So now we're down near the Fairway building and have uh, 3,000 square feet to cut meat in. And that's where all the um, beef and pork and lamb come to. And that's where it's cut. And that's also where we have some students who are doing uh, either short-term programs or 12-week apprenticeships. And we're doing a little bit of online sales through Good Eggs. And we're also doing a little vending this summer with um, Brooklyn Flea out in Jones Beach. Um, and a little bit of wholesale also to restaurants. So the majority of our business really is retail, though, by a long shot. So, you know, obviously we're uh, here in New York City. Um Millions of people. Um, can you give us a sense of, you know, where Fleischer's fits in as a, 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 and businesses like Fleischer's fits in as a percentage of the meat that's being purchased in this city? Oh boy, uh, that would be really, really hard to estimate. Um, I would say it's a tiny minority. I'm guessing. I have very little sense of how much meat is being sold uh, at the average supermarket, but I see the meat counter at Fairway nearby us and. It's big. There are tons of people there. I'm guessing that we're a really small minority of the business. Yeah, that's right. That I- being said, we I feel like we sell a lot of meat, you know, and um, I know other colleagues in this business, Dixon's, um, Sagartuck Craft Butchery, um, Hudson and Charles, Harlem Shambles. I think all of them are pretty busy. But it's still probably probably a pretty small percentage. Yeah, it kind of drops in the drops in the bucket, which is exciting because you know there's potential for growth if we can figure out how to how to scale it up. Kathleen, on your end, um, be, you know you're pretty tucked into the the farmers in um, that those communities. Is is there? Um, I guess are your farms typical of the region or or atypical of the region? The folks that are coming to you and is there has there been a kind of like shift in that demographic of kind of who's farming? Well, over time, the the size of farms um, went from small family farms up to large mega farms, and then. In New York State, that's been primarily dairy in this area and then um, crops 
in western New York and fruits and vegetables in western New York. But now there are more and more farms that are going toward small, small and mid-size agriculture, which is, I think the definition of mid-size is up to $500,000 in sales, agricultural sales. So um, I'd say <clears throat> all of our farmers are small to mid-sized, and with a different attitude about farming, if, if you went to, say, a beef farmer's meeting 20 years ago, which I was doing 20 years ago, or a lamb farmer's meeting 20 years ago, what you saw is traditional agriculture. And today, if you go to those same meetings, you see a totally different profile. You see more um you see more women in agriculture. You see more um, different ethnicities involved in agriculture. It is not just, um, you know, the way it used to be. And what has happened with that, what's grown with that, is their um, enjoyment of grass-based farming and all of the things that go with that and producing a more natural, less chemical-dependent type of product. And those are the farmers that we're working with. Well, guys, we need to take just a short station break. And when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about feeding the future and and what we can look forward to um, in the next decade with regards to meat production. So hang tight. You're tuned into the Farm Report, and we'll be right back. listening to You've Got Me Going Baby by the fabulous Conti family. is the only farm in the United States that has its own USDA-inspected red meat abattoir or slaughterhouse and its own USDA-inspected poultry abattoir or slaughterhouse. We partner with Whole Foods to deliver our high-quality meat and poultry from Miami, Florida, all the way to Princeton, New Jersey. One family, one farm, five generations, 145 years. A full circle return to sustainable land stewardship and humane animal stockmanship. For more information, please visit our website, whiteoakpastures.com. This is Nick Phantasma with Paradise Locker Meats, and I listen to the Heritage Radio Network. 
All right. We are back after a very meaty break there. Um, Shout out to our our sponsors, uh, White Oak Pastures and Paradise Locker Meats. We are talking meat today. You're listening to The Farm Report. We're on the line with Kathleen Harris, who is the founder and director of the Northeast Livestock Processing Service. And we are in studio with Christopher Hilla, um, who is working with the team over at Fleischer. So, Christoph, we um, we're talking a little bit about an op-ed that was uh, ran in the New York Times last week by Brent Smith, who talked a little bit about the truth of small farms. And um, you know, his contention was that small farms aren't really making it. Uh, I'm wondering, did you have some reactions to that? Was it a surprise, or do you feel like it's confirming like what you've been seeing through your work as as both a chef and through Fleischer's? Well. Um, in restaurant work, we found that, um, in a sense, it's self-selecting because the people who are not making it um, don't sell to us, so we don't really know who they are. We have a very good group of purveyors, and that's the same thing in Fleischer's. The, um, it's, um, it's a great group of people. They stay with us. We don't see people drop off, but there's some selection process happening there that we're not seeing. Uh, I thought this was the greatest thing written about farm to table in ages. Um, it's it's good to sort of have a, a gut check and a you know bullshit detector um, for ourselves in this movement to say you know what is true and what is you know fictionalized and what's what's being fetishized. And this is you know I think the the point that Brent Smith made is that there's an issue of scale in all these businesses and people need to understand scale. And scale isn't necessarily something that is always. Um, you know, larger industries' fault. Um, in a sense, there, there are price pressures um, that are sort of resident in the whole, you know, in our culture of shopping and all that, about like what we expect to pay for a steak or a chicken, and a lot of that is driven by, by big ag. On the other hand, you know, when you start a business, you kind of need to do your research and do some due diligence and figure out, you know, what does it take to do this business and have it survive? And what we're learning in Fleischer's is that you know, you can either be a mom and pop shop with two founders cutting meat, selling it to customers, staying really small, staying very tight and focused on what you're doing, or you have to get into a bigger size. Um, you probably have to be, you know, four, five, six shops to, you know, sustain the kind of like this mini corporate culture of, you know, like you got like a manager, you know, you got a protein manager, you got a buyer, you have some, you know, well-paid butchers, you have a couple trucks, you know, this like... It's not that big of a company, really, at all, but it, it, that's what's required. Because when you're in the middle spot, it gets really hard to survive. So that's the process that we're in, is growing ourselves to a size when we can sustain ourselves. And I don't know, what you know, Kathleen will weigh in here, I hope, and say how that fits in with farming. Because I, I suspect it's similar, that the dream of being you know, a small, tiny business and making something that's equivalent to like a middle-class income is, you know, is fading as other expenses go up. Um, I just, it, it's like, it's a very useful article for everybody to read and, and to really think about in terms of how this applies to uh, when we say things like support our farmers. Well, what does that mean? Like, you can't just support farmers, like you have to support good farmers and good businesses and wish them to get to a state when they can survive and you know, pass this on to their kids or whatever it is. Sure. Well, they have to be kind of a viable business. It's not uh, a charity. And I think that's kind of this weird, sometimes the food movement kind of wades a little bit into this, like help our farmers, save our farmers um, language that I feel like is for me a touch sticky. And one of the things you said uh, during the break is that, you know, scale matters and you can't subvert certain economic realities by carrying a lot. Um, and, and, 
Kathleen, I think one of the interesting spaces that you're really occupying is you really have your finger on the pulse of what is the infrastructure that both kind of retail shops like Christoph's and farmers like you work with, what is it that they need to make their businesses run? There's the processors, there's kind of the trucking, but then there's the sales and, and marketing. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit, I mean, obviously... You know, your organization has undergone a, a lot of growth, and, and I get the sense that you feel very um, excited by the attention that's happening around local food. What do, you, what do you hope for, you know, in the next decade of business? What would kind of scaling up look like um, from where you sit? Well, I I think it's a very exciting time to be in agriculture. Um, in my many years of life, and, you know, women never tell their age, um, it has been the best time I've ever seen for commodity pricing. Um, so even if a farmer just sends their livestock to the auction and doesn't do any of the value-added marketing, they're still getting a huge number for their livestock. Um, so... What do I see? I mean, continuing the same would be great for the farmers. Um, and also, like Christoph was saying, you know, making it so that the business uh, runs well, well enough to secure uh, participation by the next generation. I mean, if the next generation sees that the farm does well, sees that the farmers, you know, can actually take a vacation occasionally and, you know, bill collectors aren't knocking on the door. If they see that, they'll be more inclined to take over the farm businesses and enterprises and keep the land and farming. So that's that's my hope and aspiration. I see that with our commissioner, our new commissioner of agriculture, Richard Ball, you know, his family is taking over his farm, and a lot of it has to do with the way, you know, uh, he's managed his farm and made it successful. And many other folks, it's the same way. Um, the next generation, they need to be looking at the way agriculture is now. And when we pursue marketing opportunities like the hand-and-glove relationship that we have with Fleischers, that secures something for not only the people who are farming now, but the next generation. And when you have everybody wanting the same goal, which is to bring good, healthy, wholesome food to American citizens, then I think if we can all keep that focus and that goal and do it as transparently as possible, I think that agriculture is and will continue to be in a really good place. Do you have a sense, you know, outside of folks who are going to be transitioning um, ownership within a family, um, as as there are people coming who are new to agriculture into the community, are there are there kind of um, I don't know best practices or common mistakes or things that you would say to you know folks who might be here in Brooklyn thinking like, hey, I want to like throw it in and I'm going to go upstate and I'm going to start my own kind of you know beef farm. What are the things that they should be thinking about or, um, you know, planning for and any kind of, like, broad strokes? Was that addressed to me, Erin? Yeah, yeah. Okay. One thing I think people need not to be is overconfident in the sense that anyone can farm. I mean, I have a four-year agricultural degree from Penn State, 
and I don't know near of what I should in order to jump into other enterprises. My degree is in animal production, so naturally I have tend to focus my agricultural efforts in livestock. But to jump into another enterprise that I'm not well schooled in, you need to access the land grant university. At, you know, obviously in New York, that's Cornell and the Cooperative Extension Service Program. You need to educate yourself first. That's the most important thing. I mean, I would never presume to say to Christoph or anybody else who's been a chef, just tell me everything you need to know in a half an hour and I'll get a knife and start being a chef. That's not the way it works. You need to educate yourself. And farming has become uh, much more high-tech than it used to be, and the livestock end of it is very challenging, the physiology, the feeding, the nutrition, working of the land, keeping the land, you know, uh, properly you know, to steward the land properly. There's so many aspects to agriculture that are very complex, and people shouldn't just think that they can jump in because anybody can farm. You need to educate yourself first. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Christoph, what about in your your end of the business? Obviously, you guys have decided to pursue on some level an education component to your business, but for, for folks who are you know, kind of caught up in the wave of like being a sexy butcher at like a, a you know, or starting a business similar to Fleischer's, um, you know, what do you, I mean, what do they need to be thinking about? Like, what are people kind of getting right and getting wrong as they even approach that idea? I think it's key to um, associate yourself with businesses that are working, growing, give you opportunities and, you know, ride their coattails for as long as you can. Um, get a salary, you know, to support yourself and then really position yourself, you know, by the time you're maybe early 30s, mid 30s to then go out on your own. I think that's the the right time to do it. Um, And the people who are successful in this town, you see time and again, you know, this person worked for Danny Meyer for ages. This person worked for Mario Batali for ages. This guy, you know, studied butchery at Fleischer's for a while. You know, there's there's associations and those those associations mean something. Um, It's not just uh, it's not just a brand stamp on your resume. You learn things and you learn things that they're doing wrong that you're going to do better. Because what does what happens in this business over and again is somebody does something great. And then, you know, after a certain amount of time, it kind of seems like old hat. And then somebody else comes along and is doing something even cooler. And people are talking about that. And that's that's the normal cycle. That's kind of the way it should be. Because, you know, what's progressive today, you know, in 20 years, hopefully seems a little bit old fashioned. And um, that's a cycle that I look forward to. You know, I look forward to like the excited young people who are going to be with us. And then, you know, maybe later on, they're going to start their own butcher shop. That is even better, you know, which which is part of why at Fleischer's, we're hungry to stay, you know, as the number one butcher of like sort of progressive grass fed local pasture raised butcher in the country. Um, You can't just assume that you have that um, you have that you're granted that status forever. You go out and you try and reinvent yourself and become better and keep up standards. And, you know, now we're buying all of our meat is coming from New York State now, which is something we're very proud of. Um, I think it says a lot. It's a lot of meat. It's, you know, um, you know, it adds up to a lot. Um, and that means something to New York State. It means something to us. Um, and maybe somebody will come up with a butcher shop that sells all New York City raised beef. I have no idea. You know, it'll be something really amazing. And then we're going to say, and we're going to say, oh, my God, I didn't even know you could do that. That's amazing. <laughs> on, on the rooftop. On the rooftop. It'll be rooftop beef farming. Rooftop beef farming. Well, maybe not the first place I would invest um, my energies, personally. Or money. <laughs> or money, if I had any money to invest in such things. Um, well, we are just about out of time, but I kind of want to give you both an opportunity um, to 
to share, I guess, there there's a lot of parts of this kind of local food conversation that I feel like um, are, are getting a lot of attention um, that we, as a movement, have gotten really good about talking about. And I'm wondering if maybe you can highlight what you guys see as some of, like, the next level. Like, we've done Local Foodie 101. We, we get it. We're supposed to buy local. We, we know a certain number of questions we're supposed to ask. What's, what's you know, 202 look like? Where, where are the next kind of spaces in this conversation? What, what are the, the talks that you guys hope you're, you're going to be having with your customers? And, and Kathleen, I'll probably start with you. Well, I, I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to see that um, the local food uh, commands a premium. And I think the most important piece of wisdom I could impart today is that um, if you don't know your local farmer directly through face-to-face, if you're buying through um, a reputable shop like Fleischer's or Dixon's Farm Sand Meats, make sure that, that all those affidavits in place. Every time, you know, I send Christoph an invoice, attached to it is every farmer that contributed to the order with an affidavit stating how their livestock was raised. And I think that's really critical that um, people not only um, know their farmers, but um, know that the businesses that they're dealing with are dealing directly with farmers. And, and I think uh, Fleischer's has really done a wonderful job doing that, and we couldn't be happier with the business relationship between Melps and Fleischer's. Awesome. Krista? I would say that, you know, uh, relating to your question of, like, how, how much of the percentage of meat, you know, in the city is Fleischer's selling, is the, the 202 is going to be really expanding markets because, when you do get out, when we all get out of our little, you know, shopping bubble and we go to a place that isn't as well supplied with local food shops, you realize, well, the majority, the vast, vast majority of the country is still buying meat at Associated Sea Town, um, Stop Shop, whatever it is. And that volume, you know, dwarfs our volume. So the 202 is really going to be, I think, expanding markets and finding how to get, just chip away at those those shoppers and get our food on their plates. Um, it's challenging. There's price issues. There's um, accessibility issues. There's um, you know just opening a shop, you know, to begin with. But if we could do that, then we're going to start turning the tide. And what Kathleen's doing with institutions is you know another part of that, which is starting from you know the bottom with the kids and institutions is is another way. Um, but really hitting more families, you know, on the dinner table is going to be a, would be a, a terrific thing. That's so exciting. Well, guys, thank you both so much for joining us. It was a really interesting conversation, and I hope that you'll both be back soon. Thanks, Kathleen. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Christoph. Bye-bye. So for folks who want to learn a little bit more about Kathleen and Christoph's work, uh, you can learn more about the Northeast Livestock Processing Service by visiting www.nelpsc.com. And uh, take a look at Fleischer's. You can visit them at their Kingston shop or here in Brooklyn. Or check them out online at www.fleischers.com. If you want to get a a little taste, have someone else do some cooking for you, uh, you should definitely stop by uh, Northern Spy Food Co. You can find out more about them by visiting www.northernspyfoodco.com. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. This has been another episode of The Farm Report. I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks. And this program, like all 35 of our weekly shows, is available for free. You can find us on iTunes or via Stitcher Smart Radio 
Um, but we hope you'll visit our website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. If you believe in what we're doing, I hope you'll click that Donate tab and become a member today. Thanks so much for listening, and stay tuned in. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.